0: We continue on in Daniel this morning uh, as we are moving through prophet Daniel. Uh, This morning we will be in Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. But before we hear from uh, the Lord, the word read and received and preached, let's ask his blessing on those very things. Uh, Let's pray once more, would you? Pray with me. Our great God and heavenly Father, we come again before you. Uh, Lord, we give you thanks for the light of your word. Uh, Lord, we pray indeed that you would shine the light of that word into the darkness of our hearts. And that you would reveal those things that are displeasing in your sight. And that you would shine the light of the gospel, Lord. And that you would cause the fruit of holiness to grow up within our hearts. And that that fruit would bring you glory. Uh, Lord, we pray all these things now in the name of Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Uh, Daniel chapter 5, starting verse 1. I'll be reading the entire chapter. Daniel chapter 5. Once again, please give your full attention. This is the word of God. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken from out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the finger of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly, to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me the interpretation shall be clothed with purple, have a gold chain, a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then the king Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, Light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now, Daniel, be called... Let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Jerusalem. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show me the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you should be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your reward to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. And he was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwellings was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdoms of mankind and sets over it. Whom he wills. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was seen and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and has brought it to an end. Tekel, You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. So far the reading of God's word. A lengthy passage, but an amazing account, historical account of what happened with King Belshazzar. Uh, You know, when I first read the Bible as a young man, as a young adult, I was surprised when I would encounter things that I had heard before, familiar things, even though I'd never read it. Right? And so we come across things that have entered our vernacular, like a doubting Thomas, to bite the dust, uh, the blind leading the, bond, the blind, escaping by the skin of your teeth, going the extra mile, the scapegoat, or wolf in sheep's clothing. Right? Unbeknownst to me and many, many others who are, who are ignorant of Scripture, uh, these all come from Scripture. Right? They're all derived from the canon of God's holy word. And I'd come across these and I would think, that's where that comes from? Scripture. Um, And, of course, another very well-known phrase that has entered our vernacular is from this passage today, several, uh, actually, but the one that is in full uh, uh, focus here is that the writing is on the wall, right, the writing is on the wall, and this is an idiom or a saying um, that means simply that something bad is about to happen, right, the writing's on the wall, you're about to get fired, or whatever it might be, right, right. And so the most biblically ignorant uh, of among us still know what the meaning of some of these things are, particularly this, the writing is on the wall. When we last saw Daniel, after the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream uh, and Nebuchadnezzar's confession, uh, we saw, remember, that this dream was a judgment against Nebuchadnezzar for his arrogance and his pride, his hubris. It was a shot across the bow and a warning. And God brought Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, low, to live as a beast in mind and body, wandering the countryside of Babylon. And it was in this low state of humiliation that Nebuchadnezzar learned his place, his proper place, before the God of heaven. And he learned that God was sovereign, that God was the creator, and he was not, and that he was but a creature. He learned that valuable lesson of the distinction between the creature and the creator, We come again to our text this morning, moving through right into chapter 6, chapter 5 rather, uh, in a text that's that's coming into this familiar saying or this familiar cycle, right? We see in this narrative it was similar to what's come before already in Daniel. Yet there's a great difference here in chapter uh, 5 as we look at it. In Daniel chapter 4, you'll recall, the Nebuchadnezzar, as a result of being brought low and humiliated, he repents of his pride and his arrogance, right? He is humbled of his hubris. But then there's Daniel chapter 5, right, that we just read. And we see there that Nebuchadnezzar's successor, King Belshazzar, has the same spiritual problem of pride and arrogance. And we see as well that Belshazzar does not repent, right? Contrary to what we saw with Nebuchadnezzar. And therefore he receives God's judgment. And as we've said, the judgment is renowned in this text, what happens. That was So so much so that we still have this, this term in our language, the writing is on the wall. And a phrase is familiar to all of us. And this itself is a testimony to the enduring message written so long ago, preserved for us by God himself, <coughs> even down to today. And so let's look at this, uh, this narrative, let's look at this text and see what we find um, and see our connection to this narrative. And most importantly, its significance um, as found in Christ Jesus, uh, the Lord. <clears throat> and so, as we move from chapter 4 to chapter 5, uh, we need to recognize that history um, that's being told jumps ahead in time, right? It jumps ahead. We're actually jumping past Nebuchadnezzar's uh, next three successors, right? There's approximately 20, 23 years passed by from the death of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, to the very end of Babylon's last king, Belshazzar, right? And so he was a king, of course, Belshazzar, that very much resembles the culture in which we live, right? Which makes the self an idol, and which mocks the true and living God, seeking to profane it at every point in every way. And we see in Daniel 5 that the hope of this chapter is that God still reigns, despite the mocking king Belshazzar, in his gross hubris, who needs to be humbled. Uh, the, the, this, this narrative kicks off, verses 1 to 6, and we see a, a highlighting of this defiance of the king, a defiant king. It begins with a party, the party that is about to be crashed. But this party that's going on, we read in verse 1, the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Right, A great feast indeed, a feast uh, where the king is showing off his opulence in his greatness by size and indulgence. And he, he does all of this while the armies of the Medes and the Persians are gathering on the other side of the city walls. Right? Remember we talked about the walls, the great walls of Babylon. And we read from historians, remember they were massive. They were so thick at the top that chariots could be not only uh, ride on top of them, but they could make a U-turn. They were so huge. They're massive. And we know in addition to this, in addition to the walls, there was an impassable moat around the city, right? An impassable moat. And there the king rested and partied with a false sense of security on an earthly level and on a spiritual level. The king's enemies uh, had cut off the water supply to that city, right? To Babylon, which ran right into the heart of the city. And they would use that waterway as their way in to breach the city. Imminent destruction was coming. And the king partied, and the king drank, and he mocks, and he profanes, and he blasphemes. Belshazzar was a defiant king. He was defiant in the face of the Medes and the Persians. And worse than that, again, we read in verse 2, when he had tasted the wine, he commanded that the vessels be brought in, that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple of Jerusalem, be brought in that the king and his lords and his wives and concubines might drink from them, right? This was a mocking of the power that exceeded far any other foreign army, the Medes or the Persians or anyone else. And it says when he had tasted the wine, right? This is when he was drunk from the wine. And we can hardly miss the level and severity of his actions, again, of his blasphemy. It's easy to read over what's going on, but this is a severe and gross act that he does. And he loses control, and he orders that these vessels be brought in. They were taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. Um, And it says, by Nebuchadnezzar's father, right? The word father means predecessor or ancestor. That He orders that they be brought. And we think, why would he do this? What's he doing? This taking of the vessels that happened, we read this in Daniel 1, chapter 2, more than 60 years before this drunken party of this king Why did he want these vessels to be brought in? Well, he wanted to use them to insult and mock the God of Israel. right? He used them in a kind of drinking game to mock and ridicule and and insult uh, the Lord Yahweh. And it says in verse 3, Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And then it says, And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. And so in his pride and in his arrogance, the king orders this party, this mock ritual, and everyone partakes. And listen to the wicked mockery targeted and pointed at Yahweh, the Lord Almighty. Right, He orders that these vessels be brought in and that they all drink from them. And then in verse 4, they drank wine from them and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And this should strike us, brothers and sisters, as repulsive. It's a repulsive mockery. And it's a repulsive mockery that we see all around us, even today, in denying God's truth, in denying his word and his world. Right? God says things that the world does not like. God says, be pure, or protect your heart. One man and one woman. The world says what? No limits. Anything goes. Follow your heart follow your heart. The theme of every Disney movie. Bad bad advice. God says, I create life in the womb. Life that bears my image. It is precious. And the world says, foaming at the mouth. Life is worthless and expendable for any reason. Kill it. Kill it. And they use distorted lying language and rage, blind rage, to scream down all those that stand for God's way. For the truth, to violently fight, just to murder at will. God says, I create life. I create male and female. He says so many things, and the world screams against it. And, brothers and sisters, these things of the world should be repulsive to us. And Belshazzar's blatant mockery was repulsive. But the king's defiant, obstinate heart, we have to remember in our repulsion. That king's heart is the same heart that we also have by nature, right? As inherited from our father Adam, right, originally. And we would do well to be equally repulsed at the sin that remains in our own heart, at the sin that remains in our own heart. May we be equally disgusted and sickened at our sin and the offense of our sin to a holy God to whom we claim that we love, right? The sin is against him, our holy, just, righteous Lord, who freed us and cleansed us from the guilt and power of those sins. So may we in love tell the world that there is freedom and life and rescue and cleansing in Christ who died to save sinners like you and like me. May that be our message and our life, brothers and sisters. Uh, We read next in the text, while this wicked mockery is taking place, Unlike Daniel chapter 4, there's no delay. The shot is not across the bow. The shot is directly at the situation. Daniel 5 says, as they were mocking and drinking and praising false gods, verse 5 says, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on plaster on the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And we think of this writing hand uh, and the last time that God did this, right, you remember it was at Mount Sinai. Right? Mount Sinai, an equally horrifying event, more so even. When God gave the second tablets, you remember Moses broke them uh, in response to the repulsive actions of partying and gross idolatry while well, he's communing with the Lord. And as Israel is committing idolatry on her wedding night, right, where's Moses? Make a God for us to worship. And Aaron makes the golden calf. And the people said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast for Yahweh, for Yahweh, as he points to the golden calf. And it says, they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Catastrophic event in the life <coughs> of Israel. Uh, we see Belshazzar. He sees the fingers, and the drunken king is in terror. In his color change, color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. And his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The text says, and this is a severe and graphic depiction of the king's response. Right, and it's interesting the way that uh, uh, translators have tried to bring this down, render this into English for us throughout. Um, uh, the history of English Bibles and R.E.S.V. says his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The New American Standard says and his hip joints went slack. The NIV says his legs became weak. The King James says the joints of his loins were loosed. What is it saying? What it's saying is that the king was so afraid he lost control of his bodily functions. That's what it's saying. He was terrified. And the party king becomes the petrified king as he sees the hand riding. And the king, it says, called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers, and declared that whoever reads and interprets would be clothed with purple and have a gold chain put around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. But verse 8 says, All the king's wise men came in But they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Once again, the impotent enchanters, the wise men, prove themselves to be unwise. So we have this king that's uh, in rebellion, this obstinate king. And then we see in verses 10 to 16, the the mighty king is now in despair. Right, The king is in despair. And as someone sober enters the story, you'll notice... There in verse 10, someone sober comes in, and this person is the queen mother, it's translated uh, probably more appropriately, uh, who's most likely what? It's most likely Nebuchadnezzar's widow. right? And she says, oh, king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. And she sees this dream, interpretation, dilemma, and she's seen it before. And she tells Belshazzar, there is a man in your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And she repeats, if you notice, this triplet uh, referring to Nebuchadnezzar as your father, your father, your father, the king, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and she does this to try to what? To try to get Belshazzar to, to use his sense and follow his predecessor, to follow his way, his ancestor, in the paths where answers were found for him. Because it was King Nebuchadnezzar, you remember, it says in verse 11 and 12, who made Daniel chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because of his excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Belshazzar should have known this history. But after he has mocked and ridiculed Daniel's god and been both terrified and humiliated by that god... When Daniel's brought into the king, Belshazzar, Daniel, the only one that that can help him, the king what? He insults him. He disrespects him deliberately in the blind foolishness and rebelliousness that sin brings. Right. We talked about the stupefying nature of sin. And he says, listen, listen to the, 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 the disrespect. He says, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. Right? He doesn't even call him his name that he's been given. Right? This is, this is another slight to Daniel. And one of the issues that the Holy Spirit is showing us here that we derive from this text, he's showing us that, that the stone cold heart of every sinner, right, is just like this. This is the broken, uh, sin stained heart of every sinner. And even the stupefying effects of sin we're seeing here, they cling so closely even to us free from our sins, that remains and clings so closely to us, sin that we're painfully aware of or dangerously unaware of. And the call to all of us, brothers and sisters, is to be sensitive and aware of the black pockets of our heart and the dark corners where sin remains and infects and hurts us and is an affront to the Lord. And the awareness that nothing can can change this situation Unless God in his mighty grace breaks in and removes that heart of stone and a heart of flesh is put in its place, a heart that beats for Christ. It's only by the grace of God that this is done. <clears throat> and it's his promise to do so for those who trust in uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see this defiant king. And then we see this, uh, the, the, the king who is <clears throat> um, terrified, right? Right? He's terrified. And then finally, we see the story ends with the proclamation of the true king, right? The proclamation of the true king, the living God. Daniel, we see, isn't interested in the king's reward. Notice also there in verse 16. He doesn't care about the honor and the power that is promised to him if he can do this. Daniel's service is not for profit, right? He's not for sale. He cannot be bought. And he says, verse 17, let your gifts be for yourself and give your reward to another Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Daniel's confidence, of course, comes not in himself, but in God's power to reveal mysteries. right? Uh, chapter two, verse 30 says that it's God's power to, to reveal mysteries. Uh, and he reminds the king that Nebuchadnezzar, his ancestor uh, in his, it, of his, and of his ascent to power, right in verse 18 the Most High God gave him kingship and greatness, glory and majesty. And then he tells Belshazzar about Nebuchadnezzar's descent into humiliation. Right, He retells the story for him. He says, but, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. And that this, verse 21 uh was until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he wills. Right? And he lays it out for him. But what's Belshazzar's response? He's unaffected, has no effect on him. In verse 22, he says, And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart though you knew all this. Though you knew all this. Right? It makes us think of Paul in Romans 1 that says, Uh, Though you know of this wickedness, you not only uh, approve of them, but do them. Even though you know that they they deserve God's condemnation and wrath and death, you still do them. Stupefying nature of sin, right? You have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. History, very close. And so he learned nothing from this history. And think about what we have here, right? A defiant, hard heart of this all-powerful king, and we see, as one person has put it, uh, that the mere transfer of information gives no guarantee of transformation, right? The mere transfer of data or information does not guarantee transformation, right? Belshazzar was taught about Nebuchadnezzar, but he didn't learn from it. And this is certainly true in the spiritual realm as well. We know very well. We know we know uh, very closely, right? For growth to come, there must be life, right? For a child to grow, he must be born. For one to change and learn and grow, one first must have life. This is why the Lord says in John 3, you must be born again. You must be born again. And Belshazzar, like all men, couldn't give himself a new heart. Dead people uh, can't give life to themselves, right? They're dead. This isn't super profound, or it's basic logic, right? It's basic logic. Uh, For a dead person to have life, he must be given it from another, from outside of himself. Right? Life doesn't come from non-life. Qualities don't come from their opposites. And so Daniel makes the hard but true declaration here to this king. And he says in verse 22, again, And you have not humbled your heart, verse 23, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and then you have prayed, he recounts their mockery in the profaneness with which they carried themselves. You have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And then he says, but the Lord, uh, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Therefore, the declaration of the true king was what? Mene, mene, tekel, parson. right? And these words are words uh, that are related to uh, weights, right? words for weights. Um, in those days, money, of course, you know, was weighed out. Mene is related to a mina. Right? The tekel is related to the shekel. Um, and the parson is a reference, uh, probably a wordplay between both a half mina and also a Persia that is coming right, to take over. Um, and we have this, this diminishing sequence of, of weights, right? And then if we read them as verbs, the meaning is, as we will read, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided, right? So mane, verse 26, means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. It's done. Tekel means that you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris means that your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians, the writing's on the wall, O king, and your kingdom is done. That very night, verse 30 says, the Chaldean king was killed. And unlike Nebuchadnezzar, remember, after exalting himself and being humbled by God, and he would make this uh, generic confession, right? That was the cycle, until he made a true confession. In contrast to that, Belshazzar just dies. And then in verse 31, we read, <clears throat> And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Darius the Mede and Cyrus are likely one and the same man. we look at uh, archaeology in the text, uh, you know, history from outside of uh, of Scripture. They're the same man. Darius the Mede is the conquering king's birth name, while Cyrus is thought to be his Persian royal throne name. And so we read in Ezra, right, this... this, uh, the hand of the Lord working in the life of His people, right in the redemptive history. Ezra, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of King of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. All his kingdom. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia: The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and He has charged me to build Him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. In the exiles return. And the mighty acts of the Lord in redemptive history go forward. He is true to his word. And on uh, the multiple horizons of the fulfillment of those promises. And we rightly stand in awe as we look at these things. On the big picture, you know, you know, on, on the micro and the macro. We stand in awe of God's working in history, working in time, working out his plan with certainty, and we confess our faith in the truthfulness of God's holy word. But very often, brothers and sisters, very often, in practice, we act contrary to that belief. Right? We act contrary to that belief. We we act as if it were not true. And we think about it, and in our day-to-day lives, we are often undone by things much smaller, much smaller stresses than things that old kings of Babylon gone, had gone through, we are rattled so easily in our lives. That's that's that conflicts with the profession of our profession of our mouths, right? Threats to our health, threats to the economy, politics. Uh, when our jobs are threatened, when our engine gives out, right? Even a flat tire can set us on a course of despair, depending on where we are, what's going on in our lives. Not to diminish those stresses or concerns, but often the way that we respond to the heat that the Lord brings into our lives, that heat reveals what is in our heart, and it reveals the idols of our heart in which our trust is placed inappropriately. Or we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and then curse our neighbor or the driver next to us on the road. And if we were to be weighed in God's balance, we would all be found wanting. We would all be found wanting. But our hope is not in our weight, in our being weighed. Our hope is in the fact that in God's mind-blowing mercy, we are not. And we are not because the true king, Jesus, he was weighed and he was not found wanting. He was put to death for all who would place their trust and faith and life in him. And the days of his kingdom Right, we're not brought to an end, but what? It'll be established forever. Remember, angels' word to Mary of His kingdom there shall be no end. And it is this King, brothers and sisters, where we are to fix our eyes. Fix our eyes, not in the huge, not only in the huge earth-shattering things that are going on, but in the small things of our life, in everything of our life. Fix our eyes to Jesus. We fix our eyes. On his and so the question has to come, right? Where are your eyes fixed? <laughs> Where are our eyes fixed? Is our is our heart set on the invitation of Belshazzar's feast, the banquet offering of this world? On the banquet in the graveyard, as the psalmist says, full of lewdness and meaninglessness and immorality, and when weighed on the scale of eternal things? Are you trusting perhaps in your own goodness? And that will enable you to stand unhumbled before God. There's no future in that feast. There's no future in that feast. It is a lie. It is numbing. It is a feast of death. And you and I need to look, brothers always and sisters, upward. Upward to the true banquet and the feast of life to which Jesus Christ invites us. A feast that can be entered only by grace. Only by those who are, as Matthew says, clothed in the garments that God provides, that God provides. And it is this banquet that we far more, will will, will far more than make up for any pains that we go through in this life, in the brevity of this life. And as we look to our glorious and beautiful Savior, Jesus, may we trust and rejoice, trust and rejoice renewed, that all who've done so will forever Be awed and humbled that sinners, like we once were, should be invited and share in that table. Rejoice, dear Christians. Rejoice. We have an amazing and glorious Savior who gave his life for us in our place. Let us now take the lives that we've been given and go and live for him. Go and live for him and for his glory. Don't delay. Receive him now if you have not. And take him back into the world as we go from this place sent with a message of hope that only comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, we we praise you and thank you, Lord, as our hearts desire to give you glory, to live for you, and we praise you for the way that you work and for your wonder and love and your, your, your great mercy and work amongst your people. Father, we pray... Uh, you know that we long for you and for a closer walk with Christ. May we find our life there. May we see who we really are and what is really promised to us and not despair but rejoice seeing that you are going to bring honor and glory to your name and that you're going to fill your kingdom from every tribe under heaven. Father, we pray, help us to believe that we are truly dead to sin and alive to Christ to walk in newness of life for your glory. Dear Lord, we pray this morning for those who suffer in our midst. Uh, Lord, who of us does not suffer? You know the many ways and the details, Lord. We pray, encourage us. We pray for all of us, uh, whatever station we are in, married or single, young or old. Dear Lord, help us to have fat hearts filled with your love. And we'd be so caring and loving one another that once more the outside world would see and wonder and be captivated by your people, that we are different, that we have joy, inexplicable joy, the joy of being belonging to Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord, use us in our lives to witness to your glory. We thank you that you've fed us afresh this day with Jesus, the bread of heaven, as we've heard your word to us, and may we see that this is our life in our sustenance, even in the midst of famine. Father, we praise you and thank you that we can come before you again, before your throne. We thank you for the sacrifice of our Savior, the provision of your grace. Help us to believe you, Lord, that you've done all that was needed for life and eternity through that self-same Jesus Christ. Lord, we often see our failure and our brokenness and it is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Lord, help us to look at those times and all times to Christ's perfection and his strength and his satisfaction and draw our eyes and hearts to glory, to that which is better and to that which is best. Lord, we want you more. And so we pray, Lord, bless us and carry us this week in this pilgrim land as we seek your face for the sake of your glory. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.